0: Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan and this is my friend Gloria. Back in September, carving up the slopes of Mount Ruapehu like a Halloween pumpkin. But the future of this particular ski field is in jeopardy.
1: While in breaking news, Ruapehu Alpine Lifts has been put into voluntary administration. Essentially a combination of the pressures of COVID and just really poor weather this season in terms of a lack of snow. A group of Ruapehu shareholders and life pass holders says appalling governance by the board of Ruapehu Alpine Lifts is to blame for the company going into voluntary administration.
2: The books have also been thrown open and the liabilities of Ruapehu Alpine Lifts have come out at 44.3 million, which is a little bit more perhaps than what was expected.
0: So, is this a death knell for snow sports in the North Island? What's being done to save the ski field? And as the planet continues to warm and snow lines creep higher and higher is the writing on the wall for other ski fields around the country? John Fisk is one of the two administrators who've taken over
2: responsibility for the ski field. He works for PwC. The creditors Claims are frozen at the date of our appointment, and it's our job to look at um, securing the assets and coming up with a plan um, on, on how they're to be dealt with acting in the best interests of the creditors. Right, OK.
0: The creditors being the people to whom the company, Ruapehu Alpine Lifts, owes money at this point in time? That's right, yes. Okay. And so how have
2: you and how has RAL found itself in this position? there 's no simple answer to this sure. uh, and, and and these sort of things build up over time there 's a whole range of circumstances that will have come into play to get to this position but what what essentially happened is the board got to a point where they couldn 't be confident that they could pay their debts as they fell due, and directors have a duty in in those circumstances to go into some sort of formal insolvency process if they can't see a way back from that insolvency. So that's how we got appointed. Part of our job is to look back at why did the company fail mm. and there's still work to be done there. But if, if I can summarise it, um, the, the first obvious issue is, has been COVID. Two seasons where the number of visitors coming to the mountain has been massively impacted by Covid lockdowns, uh, and particularly from you know the Auckland market, mm. um, uh, that, that that has been hard. Which roope who was very reliant on. They're reliant on uh, yeah Auckland, uh, then Wellington, and mm. then the rest of the North Island really, uh, you yeah, know, really make up their um, customer base. Mm. But laid over that has been three years of a La Niña weather pattern.
1: And New Zealand is staring down the barrel of another La Niña event, which is expected to span several months.
0: Overall for us, though, what does that mean on the ground? Well, it means that northern parts of New Zealand could experience a wetter-than-normal springtime.
2: That has been significant, and particularly in 2022, because mm. they actually started the season really well. They had a, a lot of snow, yeah. but the rain came along and washed it all away. Right. Okay. Uh, and so you, you will have seen photos of um, you know, what the mountain was like in the middle of winter, and it, it was pretty grim. It was there was Desla. a lot of rocks yeah. Yeah. Um, and not a lot of snow. Uh, and so you know, that, that, again, put a massive strain on cash flow. You know, the last three years have been very, very hard, but there's also uh, a number of years where um, the company hasn't had sufficient capital to be able to do the maintenance on the mountain that it needs to. So, you know, it's a very harsh environment, uh, on the mountain. There's a lot of maintenance that goes on during summer to prepare the field for winter, and there's a lot of older equipment up there. So mm-hmm. some of the chairlifts are really nearing the end of their useful life. So that there's a massive capital expenditure programme that, that um, you know is, is in the order across the mountain of about $25 million mm-hmm. that needs to be spent over the next five years. And the board looked at that and said, well, look, we can't really commit to that because we don't have enough capital to be able to do that. So hence we are where we are today.
0: There are some things that are particular to the company RAL that also make its position more difficult, perhaps it's fair to say, than than other privately owned ski fields. The actual company structure...
2: For example, it's a non-profit, correct? Yeah, that's right. And it, 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 you know, it's been around for I think it's in its 69th year mm. now. So it's been around for a while, but it was established really uh, to cater for the clubs that were up on Fakapapa. Uh,
0: Fakapapa is one of the main ski areas on Mount Ruapehu. The others called Turoa.
2: There's forty-eight club buildings up on on the mountain now, and they needed chairlifts to to access the um, ski fields, so th- so that the company was really formed on a sort of um, you know to support the clubs to be able to get access to the, to the ski fields, and and it was as you say um, it's a not for profit, um, uh, which means all profits need to be reinvested. Yeah, pretty much immediate, immediately. That, that's right, and yeah. but also it makes it hard to to raise capital. Sure. So a, a, a normal privately owned ski operator. Can go out and and raise capital, and um, you know it's it's a lot easier. in In the case of RAL, they ended up with a lot of shareholders, but with a lot of constraints about how they could actually operate, mm. and that's why um, LifePass holders became an important way of funding the development.
1: In the wallet of Oakuni local Harry Haralambi is a coveted accessory for any keen Kiwi skier. A special life ski pass giving him unlimited access to the slopes of Whakapapa and Tūroa. It cost about $2,000 when he got it in 1996. About 14,000 people have one of these.
2: And the season pass uh, campaigns that were held every year became an important part of funding the Next season, so yeah, um, um, th- there's that challenge combined with the challenge of being on a national park, and also a, a co-governance arrangement uh, with iwi, mm-hmm. which requires consultation for you know any changes that are made um, to the to the concession. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to put in a new lift, um, there's a, a, a you know, it's not just a case of building it um, and getting the resource consent, it, it, there is a consultation process that takes time mm. um, and and so all those factors have meant that it's been um, more difficult for RAL to, to do some of the things that you would expect a, a normal ski operator to do.
0: Now it's worth going over a couple of those points again because they are two of the factors unique to Ruapehu among Aotearoa ski fields that make its position a bit trickier to navigate. Most big ski fields in New Zealand are privately owned. They exist to make money. Ru'apehu isn't. It was set up in the 1950s as a club field, and it's grown exponentially since then. Some members think the company's grown too much, that it's pursued a corporate model which is maybe against its interests and the interests of members. Additionally, the mountain is in the middle of a national park. It's also a taonga in its own right. And that means, basically, that Ruapehu Ski Field exists at the pleasure of the Department of Conservation and the local iwi. If RAL wants to change something, they have to go through a long process with lots of considerations beyond just what's best for the ski field. But even in spite of these constraints, there are fierce critics of how Ruapehu has been run at a board level. Like... Sam Clarkson, a spokesperson for the Ruapehu shareholders and Lifepass members.
2: RL's become more and more corporate over the years. It's a bit like when you hammer, everything looks like a nail. The corporates have thought that the answer to the problem was to become ever more corporate. And when that didn't work, let's go even more corporate still. Our attempts to take things back to the core of RL, which is of the skiers, by the skiers, for the skiers... Unfortunately, the board and the trust have stonewalled us at literally every turn.
0: Ariel has made some risky financial calls. It's deferred some maintenance of vital equipment and infrastructure. And it's also made some big and some might say ill-advised Investments.
1: The sky waka on Whakapapa, and indeed, MB appears to have come to the party with a $10 million loan in the first instance uh, to build that, and then an additional $5 million loan at a concessionary interest rate of 2.78%. People would love that at the moment. When you look at the overall picture of deferred maintenance versus new investments, are there some questions here?
2: I think if you look at what their intention was with the with some of the big ticket outlays. So the, the, the latest one was the Skywalker. Skywalker yeah. and, and, and you know, the whole thinking behind that was to try and change the operation on the mountain to not just be a 3 4 month ski season but to be something that is available all year round. Yeah, the Skywalker's so, intention really was to to, to to encourage sightseers to to come up the mountain. It's a great experience There's, you know the, on a good day it's a fabulous it's view yeah. uh, and you know they they put in a uh, the Knoll Ridge cafe which um, was rebuilt after a fire but you know it's a it's a magnificent building as mm. well and it's an opportunity for people to experience snow for the first time, you know, tourists to come in and, and, and see the country and 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 look at it in a, a completely different light so so that um, you know that, that was a very expensive installation, mm-hmm. but uh, it was also done with the intention of trying to diversify from yeah. just being a, a ski field I, I think if, if, if I look at it yeah, what, what they 've had is um, they acquired Toura ski resort in in two thousand uh, we were involved in the receivership of that, so mm-hmm. so we ended up selling Turra to ral. Um, and so taking on the maintenance of two ski fields with all the chairlifts and, and things that are, are needed to be maintained, that's a big undertaking. And, um, you know, when you have a bad season, it, it, it really knocks you back. So it, it, sometimes, you know, it could be said that some of the decisions may not have been the best, but it, but it's also, you know, they're dealing with a, an environment which is really difficult to, to manage and predict. The
0: thing is, skiing is an activity that is becoming more difficult to manage and predict because you know, the planet's warming. And uh, well, here's an insight for you. Warmer temperatures are not good for snow. John O'Conway is a hydrological forecasting scientist at Niwa. He's done some work recently modeling what the changing climate might mean for snow levels
3: around the country. I mean are there's key fields in Atlas Springs? No, I mean, you absolutely need the cold temperatures to make and you know and maintain that snow through the winter. I think the future of snow is really a matter of, of timing and, and also what path the world takes in terms of reducing emissions. Yeah, I guess unlike glaciers, um, they have memory from year to year and they, they can't survive on a few good seasons. Seasonal snow is sort of a fresh slate every year. So you can have a worst year ever and then next year have the best year ever. So we did some work recently for the Queenstown area with a student from University of Otago. We looked at a a scenario where we had one and a half degrees warming and a a 10% increase in precipitation. So kind of looking at a a sort of a mid-range scenario for the end of the century or kind of a worst case scenario for mid-century. So that's sort of, you know, 30 years away, 2050. And what we saw there was there was sort of 20 to 50 days less snow, natural snow cover at all elevations in the Queenstown area. Gee. So with the biggest decreases in, in that being around that uh, snow line where there was sort of 90 days continuous snow cover. So there were 20 to 50 days less natural snow cover. Quite quite a lot, yeah, yeah. And so if you think about a 200-metre rise in in that 90-day snow line, so what you're used to getting at, say, 1,400 metres, worst case by mid-century, you'll have to go up to 1,600 metres to find. And then if we continue on a worst-case scenario, it would be probably the same again, another 200 metres rise by the end of the century. So, yeah, I guess the, the, the gist is, yeah, you're going to have to go Higher up the mountains mm. to get the same natural snow cover.
0: The moisture and pre- precipitation element of this is, is interesting, and maybe, maybe we can use, if you're familiar with it, we can use this this year's sort of winter as an example of this. Like when the winter got off to a start, it got off to a great start. There was this great big, it was really cold, and there was this great big dumping of snow in like July, but. Because we're experiencing a La Niña weather pattern this year, there was also a lot of rain, and the rain came in pretty much straight afterwards. These reports say, and, and kind of washed away a lot of that that snow. Is is that kind of is that what happened? Is to, to your understanding?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, rain is is snow's worst enemy. It's, you know, it's, it's his brother, but it's, it's yeah. It, it's it evil, brother. Yeah, it's, it's, it's evil, evil brother. Yeah. It's evil brother, evil twin. Evil twin. Yeah. <laughs> it's not only not snow, it's not adding to the snow, it's also melting it. You know, the conditions that are raining are melting snow r- rapidly, you know, and we saw even as far south as um, Arthur's Pass, we've got a site up at about 1,650 metres there, so fairly high. And early in the winter, that had the most snow that, that we'd seen in the, in the 10 years of record there. In in, in July. And then in mid August, the big atmospheric river event that hammered Nelson also hammered Arthur's Pass, and they lost the entire snowpack there. So it went from above normal to to nothing Mm -hmm. over the course of a few days. So, yeah, rain really, um, you know, rain really hammers it. And I think in these La Nina conditions where things are a bit more disturbed, we don't have these nice westerlies with consistent sort of fronts coming through. Bringing little bits of snow, we can get these big um, disturbed events, these big atmospheric river events. And depending on whereabouts you are, if you're in the warm part of that system, then you're not having a good time. If you're in the cold part of that system, like um, sort of from up Arthur's Pass south, you are getting snow out of those events. The boom or bust.
1: South Island ski field operators are increasingly looking to rely on snow making technology to keep runs open as the climate changes and snowfall is less reliable. Further north, Ruapehu Alpine Lifts, which operates the Whakapapa and Turoa ski fields, has gone into voluntary administration after three seasons of poor snow and COVID-19 restrictions.
2: Here's John Fisk again. You can't deny that you know, climate change is having an impact mm. and... Um, and that's why, uh, you know, over the years the company has invested in snowmaking mm. um, and that sort of thing. So, finding another way to actually recreate what nature can do is, is, is has been an important part of that process. But, but the weather pattern that we referred to before La about Nina. La Nina is it has actually. It's lasted three years this time, which is and, un- which unprecedented. Uh, just it is it, unprecedented. Yeah. Is that climate change? I, you know, I guess some would argue that it is, um, but there's still runway to to have a ski field mm. there. And um, if we talk to management, they have plans for the way that the ski field is actually exploited. So, moving higher up the mountain mm. and and across the mountain is is there is still. Good, good snow, and you know, the. Height is is very similar to some of our ski fields down south. Mm. So, it, it's not as if in the next five years or something you're going to have no skiing there. No, but but it is it is changing.
0: What do you want to do? Like there are a lot of options that are available to you. You could liquidate the business, presumably. Mm. You could find a buyer for it. But I guess is the goal
2: to keep it open and as close to what it is at the moment as you can. Y- yes, so it's absolutely is the goal to to keep it open. We, what we want is to be able to have a sightseeing. Um, season over Christmas and also to be open for 2023. That's the objective that w- that we're working to. And we've got very little time mm. to be able to do that uh, and, and, and very little money um, to be able to do it. And, and that's why we're going to have to move quickly. And we need to come up with a plan quickly that we can put to creditors to be able to achieve that. Now, that's not certain at the moment. But if you look at the implications of not doing that, they are significant. Um, so there is a make-good uh, requirement in the concession with DOC. Um, so that, that make-good could be uh, up to $100 million. What, what does that mean? Sorry, so just a so that, that means that if, if there is no longer skiing on the mountain, then there's an obligation on the company to remove all the infrastructure and, and put the mountain back into mm-hmm. the... Essentially pristine condition yeah. as as, as a, a national park again, and it's staggeringly expensive. It's staggeringly expensive because you, you look at the, we talked before about the infrastructure of the um, lifts and everything there. Mm. There's a whole lot of assets above ground, and then there's assets below ground as well. So mm. you've got all the foundations mm. and the pipes and all those sorts and of things. And all that, that would have to go, and all that would have to be removed. It's you know it's a big exercise. Mm. there's this, you know, whether it's helicopters or having to wait until the snow there to be able to get access to things to be able to pull them off, there's a there's a massive job in in doing that.
1: You were very upfront then about the scale of what it would cost if this business was liquidated because of the make good provisions, getting everything off that mountain. Something like $150 million all up would be the consequence.
2: And then there's also the um, social cost. We feel for the staff that uh, are affected by this, and it's not just the immediate staff. It's actually what trickles down below uh, that, and we have issues around the towns like uh, Ohakuni National Park who traditionally have based their business around the good ski seasons. And so we've got to work through some of those issues. And if you look at um, the number of people that uh, RAO employed, it's up to 700 people in the peak of winter. Mm. And then there's about 860 jobs that support the um, ski field over uh, around the region. The so region. that you know, And the economic damage... That would be caused by a closure. Um, you know, we've had estimates again of about hundred million dollars to the local economy each year for um, for that to go. So these are really significant social issues, and um, and, and it's not just, so it's not just a business issue. There's there's a whole range of implications that it's in everyone's interest really to avoid. Well, that, I mean that's an interesting point about this, isn't it? Is that and I, I'm sure that you've come across this
0: um, criticism—not really the right word, but comment maybe in relation to the story that it's like ah skiing who cares it's just it's just rich people doing their thing and you know skiing is an expensive activity to do but what you are saying there is that it's it's not just rich Aucklanders won't be able to go up the mountain anymore there are significant knock-on effects
2: absolutely you're you're right there, there could well be a perception out there that this is you know Rich people um, complaining about not being able to go skiing in the North Island, but it's 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 a much bigger issue than that, and and I think New Zealand would be that much poorer without that. And, and when I look at it, there's a whole range of other opportunities that could be associated with 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 what's there as well. Oh, yeah. You know, from a cultural point of view, there's a magnificent story to be told about the mountain that New Zealanders could gain a lot from being up there. Other people have talked about things like mountain biking uh, and and walking and exploring the area. Those are all things that I think need to be talked about mm. and, and, and looked at as being an opportunity. Um, you know, the Tongariro Crossing comes across there and, you know, the Chateau, uh, which is, you know, again, facing some issues at the moment. But all of those things, if you, if you look at them in combination with a, a rail um, link between Auckland and Wellington. Mm. There's all sorts of opportunity that could be created there, so we just don't want to see that opportunity die. The the other thing that is is quite important here, I think, is that you know the South Island is actually supportive of having a North Island ski field, mm. because. You know, at the peak of winter down south, when you've got a lot of um, Australian tourists coming in, yeah. those fields actually don't have the capacity to deal with the, the numbers. Full to uh, Yeah, yeah that, that's right. So, so Ruapehu is, is a nursery ground for skiers. You know, the first skiing experience for most North Islanders is up at Ruapehu, yeah. uh, and and so that brings people into the uh, industry, but it also means that, that it, there's, there's not so much pressure on down south mm. and as you mentioned before about the, the cost of skiing uh, you know if you add the cost of having to go down south from, from the North Island and buying accommodation and yeah. everything else uh, you know if you've never skied before that's quite a big commitment to mm. be making. So you know there's a lot of reasons to um, to try and maintain a ski field in the North Island. That's it for today I'm Emil
0: Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand on Air and produced by newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansel and produced by Sarah Robson, and thanks to John Fisk and John O'Conway.
2: Matewa